1964, when Robert F. Kennedy resigned from the Justice Department and was elected senator from the state of New York, I was working on a book about his attorney generalship. I had temporarily moved my family from New York to Washington, D.C. for research purposes, only to find that Burke Marshall was by that time vice president and general counsel of IBM and living in Bedford Hills, New York, where his papers resided in the attic. After Robert Kennedy was assassinated, Marshall granted me permission to go through his files. He told me I probably wouldn't find anything of interest, because the Kennedys did everything by word of mouth, and when one leaves the Justice Department, the FBI purges one's files of all sensitive materials. Nevertheless, if I wanted to waste my time. So every weekend, I would take the Eastern Shuttle to LaGuardia, rent a car, drive to Bedford Hills, and install myself in the Marshal's attic. Burke would come up from time to time, and laughing nervously, I thought, would ask what I was doing up there since there could be nothing of interest. Then we would have dinner at a local restaurant, and we would discuss what I had discovered in his files. Although what I found was mostly routine, the conversations were invaluable because they gave me a chance to get this thoughtful man's opinions on everything from federalism, about which he had written a book, to the role of the FBI, the March on Washington, Robert Kennedy's involving commitment to civil rights, and how that expressed itself in terms of his relationship to his brother, the president, and after JFK's assassination, President Johnson, and much, much more. One weekend, Burke told me that he and his wife, Violet, were going to be taking a vacation in the Caribbean the following week, but I was welcome to make my weekly pilgrimage to the attic in his absence. As it happened, that weekend there was a blizzard so great, along with my rented car, I got snowed in and was forced to stay the night. I spent that night in the attic, where, as always, I buried myself in Burke's correspondence and memorandums. At two-thirty in the morning, I came across a sealed file. There was no indication on the outside what the file contained. What to do? I could wait until Marshall returned and ask. But since it was two-thirty in the morning, since I was there, and he wasn't, and since he had, after all, granted me permission to read through his files with no conditions. What else could I do? After weighing the ethical pros and cons for about thirty seconds, I carefully unsealed the file and found copies of a series of memorandums, the first of which said that J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, had requested the Attorney General's authorization to tap the phone of Martin Luther King, Jr. The basis of the request was that there were two high-ranking members of the Communist Party in Dr. King's entourage. One, a New York attorney named Stanley Levison, and the other, Hunter Pitts Jack O'Dell, an African-American who, at Levinson's suggestion, had been hired to run the Southern Christian Leadership Conference's SELC 
New Direct Mail Fundraising Office in Harlem. The purpose of the wiretap was to monitor Dr. King's conversations in order to discover whether Levison and Odell were attempting to influence Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement on behalf of the USSR.